This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 20, Chapter 13. David Copperfield. In this book, Dickens is really trying to write a new kind of book, and the enterprise is almost as chivalrous as a cavalry charge. He is making a romantic attempt to be realistic. That is almost the definition of David Copperfield. In his last book, Dombey and Son, we see a certain maturity and even a certain mild exhaustion in his earlier farcical method. He never failed to have fine things in any of his books, and Toots is a very fine thing. Still, I could never find Captain Curry and Mr. Saul Gills very funny, and the whole wooden midshipman seems to me very wooden. In David Copperfield he suddenly unseals a new torrent of truth, the truth out of his own life. The impulse of the thing is autobiography. He is trying to tell all the absurd things that have happened to himself, and not the least absurd thing is himself. Yet, though it is Dickens' ablest and clearest book, there is in it a falling away of an almost singular kind. Generally speaking, there was astonishing little of fatigue in Dickens' books. He sometimes wrote bad work, he sometimes wrote even unimportant work, but he wrote hardly a line which is not full of his own fierce vitality and fancy. If he is dull, it is hardly ever because he cannot think of anything. It is because, by some silly excitement or momentary lapse of judgment, he has thought of something that was not worth thinking of. If his joke is feeble, it is as an impromptu joke at an uproarious dinner-table may be feeble. It is no indication of any lack of vitality. The joke is feeble, but it is not a sign of feebleness. Broadly speaking, this is true of Dickens. If his writing is not amusing us, at least it is amusing him. Even when he is tiring, he is not tired. But in the case of David Copperfield, there is a real reason for noting an air of fatigue. For although this is the best of all Dickens' books, it constantly disappoints the critical and intelligent reader. The reason is that Dickens began it under his sudden emotional impulse of telling the whole truth about himself, and gradually allowed the whole truth to be more and more deluded, until towards the end of the book we are back in the old pedantic and decorative art of Dickens, an art which we justly admired in its own place and on its own terms, but which we resent when we feel it gradually returning through a tale pitched originally in a more practical and piercing key. Here, I say, is the one real example of the fatigue of Dickens. He begins his story in a new style, and then slips back into an old one. The earlier part is in his later manner. The later part is in his earlier manner. There are many marks of something weak and shadowy in the end of David Copperfield. Here, for instance, is one of them which is not without its bearing on many tendencies of modern England. Why did Dickens, at the end of his book, give way to that typically English optimism about emigration? 
he seems to think that he can cure the souls of a whole cartload or rather boatload of his characters by sending them all to the colonies peggotty is a desolate and insulted parent whose house has been desecrated and his pride laid low therefore let him go to australia emily is a woman whose heart is broken and whose honour is blasted but she will be quite happy if she goes to australia mr micawber is a man whose soul cannot be made to understand the tyranny of time or the limits of human hope but he will understand all these things if he goes to australia for it must be noted that dickens does not use this emigration merely as a mode of exit he does not send these characters away on a ship merely as a symbol suggesting that they pass wholly out of his hearer's life he does definitely suggest that australia is a sort of island valley of avalon where the soul may heal it of its grievous wound it is seriously suggested that peggotty finds peace in australia it is really indicated that emily regains her dignity in australia it is positively explained of mr micawber not that he was happy in australia for he would be that anywhere but that he was definitely prosperous and practically successful in australia and that he would certainly be nowhere colonizing is not talked of merely as a coarse economic expedient for going to a new market it is really offered as something that will cure the hopeless tragedy of peggotty as something that will cure the still more hopeless comedy of micawber i will not dwell here on the subsequent adventures of this very sentimental and extremely english illusion it would be an exaggeration to say that dickens in this matter is something of a forerunner of much more modern imperialism his political views were such that he would have regarded modern imperialism with horror and contempt nevertheless there is here something of that hazy sentimentalism which makes some imperialists prefer to talk of the fringe of the empire of which they know nothing rather than that of the heart of the empire which they know is diseased it is said that in the twilight and decline of rome close to the dark ages the people in gaul believed that britain was a land of ghosts perhaps it was foggy and that the dead were ferried across to it from the northern coast of france if as is not entirely impossible our own century appears to future ages as a time of temporary decay and twilight it may be said that there was attached to england a blessed island called australia to which the souls of the socially dead were ferried across to remain in bliss forever this element which is represented by the colonial optimism at the end of david copperfield is a moral element the truth is that there is something a little mean about this sort of optimism i do not like the notion of david copperfield sitting down comfortably to his tea-table with agnes having got rid of all the inconvenient or distressing characters of the story by sending them to the other side of the world the whole thing has too much about it of the selfishness of a family which sends a scapegrace to the colonies to starve with its blessing there is too much in the whole thing of that element which was satirized by an ironic interpretation of the epithet peace perfect peace with loved ones far away we should have thought more of david copperfield and also of charles dickens if he had endeavored for the rest of his life by conversation and comfort 
to bind up the wounds of his old friends from the seaside. We should have thought more of David Copperfield, and also of Charles Dickens, if he had faced the possibility of going on till his dying day, lending money to Mr. Wilkins Micawber. We should have thought more of David Copperfield, and also of Charles Dickens, if he had not looked upon the marriage with Dora merely as a flirtation, an episode which she survived and ought to survive. And yet the truth is that there is nowhere in fiction where we feel so keenly the primary human instinct and principle that a marriage is a marriage and irrevocable, that such things do leave a wound and also a bond, as in this case of David's short connection with his silly little wife. When all is said and done, when Dickens has done his best and his worst, when he has sentimentalized for pages and tried to tie up everything in the pink tape of optimism, the fact in the psychology of the reader still remains. The reader does still feel that David's marriage to Dora was a real marriage, and that his marriage to Agnes was nothing, a middle-aged compromise, a taking of the second best, a sort of spiritualized and sublimated marriage of convenience. For all the readers of Dickens, Dora is thoroughly avenged. The modern world, intent on anarchy and everything, even in government, refuses to perceive the permanent element of tragic constancy which inheres in all passion, and which is the origin of marriage. Marriage rests upon the fact that you cannot have your cake and eat it, that you cannot lose your heart and have it. But as I have said, there is perhaps no place in literature where we feel more vividly the sense of this monogamous instinct in a man than in David Copperfield. A man is monogamous, even if he is only monogamous for a month. Love is eternal, even if it is only eternal for a month. It always leaves behind it the sense of something broken and betrayed. But I have mentioned Dora in this connection only because she illustrates the same fact which Micawber illustrates, the fact that there is at the end of this book too much tendency to bless people and get rid of them. Micawber is a nuisance. Dickens the despot condemns him to exile. Dora is a nuisance. Dickens the despot condemns her to death. But it is the whole business of Dickens in the world to express the fact that such people are the spice and interest of life. It is the whole point of Dickens that there is nobody more worth living with than a strong, splendid, entertaining, immortal nuisance. Micawber interrupts practical life, but what is practical life that it should venture to interrupt Micawber? Dora confuses the housekeeping, but we're not angry with Dora because she confuses the housekeeping. We're angry with the housekeeping because it confuses Dora. I repeat, and it cannot be too much repeated, that the whole lesson of Dickens is here. It is better to know Micawber than not to know the minor worries that arise out of knowing Micawber. It is better to have a bad debt and a good friend. In the same way it is better to marry a human and a healthy personality which happens to attract you than to marry a mere housewife, for a mere housewife is a mere housekeeper. All this was what Dickens stood for that the very people who are most irritating in small business circumstances are often the people who are most delightful in long stretches of experience of life. It is just the man who is maddening when he is ordering a cutlet or arranging an appointment 
who is probably the man in whose company it is worthwhile to journey steadily toward the grave. Distribute the dignified people and the capable people and the highly business-like people among all the situations which their ambition or their innate corruption may demand. But keep close to your heart, keep deep in your inner councils, the absurd people. Let the clever people pretend to govern you, let the unimpeachable people pretend to advise you, but let the fools alone influence you. Let the laughable people whose faults you see and understand be the only people who are really inside your life who really come near you or accompany you on your lonely march towards the last impossibility. That is the whole meaning of Dickens, that we should keep the absurd people for our friends. And here at the end of David Copperfield he seems in some dim way to deny it. He seems to want to get rid of the preposterous people, simply because they will always continue to be preposterous. I have a horrible feeling that David Copperfield will send even his aunt to Australia if she worries him too much about donkeys. I repeat, then, that this wrong ending of David Copperfield is one of the very few examples in Dickens of a real symptom of fatigue, having created splendid beings for whom alone life might be worth living. He cannot endure the thought of his hero living with him. Having given his hero superb and terrible friends, he is afraid of the awful and tempestuous vista of their friendship. He slips back into a more superficial kind of story, and ends it in a more superficial way. He is afraid of the things he has made, of that terrible figure Micawber, of that yet more terrible figure Dora. He cannot make up his mind to see his hero perpetually entangled in the splendid tortures and sacred surprises that come from living with really individual and unmanageable people. He cannot endure the idea that his fairy prince will not have henceforward a perfectly peaceful time. But the wise old fairy tales, which are the wisest things in the world, at any rate the wisest things of worldly origin, the wise old fairy tales never were so silly as to say that the prince and the princess live peacefully ever afterward. The fairy tales say that the prince and the princess lived happily ever afterwards, and so they did. They lived happily, though it is very likely that from time to time they threw the furniture at each other. Most marriages, I think, are happy marriages, but there is no such thing as a contented marriage. The whole pleasure of marriage is that it is a perpetual crisis. David Copperfield and Dora quarrelled over the cold mutton and if they had gone on quarrelling to the end of their lives, they would have gone on loving each other to the end of their lives. It would have been a human marriage. But David Copperfield and Agnes would agree about the cold mutton, and that cold mutton would be very cold. I have here endeavoured to suggest some of the main merits of Dickens within the framework of one of his faults. I have said that David Copperfield represents a rather sad transition from his strongest method to his weakest. Nobody would ever complain of Charles Dickens going on writing his own kind of novels, his old kind of novels. If there be anywhere a man who loves good books, that man wishes that there were four Oliver Twists and at least forty-four Pickwicks. If there be anyone who loves laughter and creation, he would be glad to read a hundred of Nicholas Nickleby and two hundred of the old curiosity shop. 
But while anyone would have welcomed one of Dickens' own ordered and conventional novels, it was not in this spirit that they welcomed David Copperfield. David Copperfield begins as if it were going to be a new kind of Dickens' novel. Then it gradually turns into an old kind of Dickens' novel. It is here that many readers of this splendid book have been subtly and secretly irritated. Nicholas Nickleby is all very well. We accept him as something which is required to tie the whole affair together. Nicholas is a sort of string, or clothesline, on which are hung the limp figures of Smike, the jumping jack of Mr. Squeers, and the twin dolls named Cherryble. If we do not accept Nicholas Nickleby as the hero of the story, at least we accept him as the title of the story. But in David Copperfield, Dickens begins something which looks for the moment fresh and startling. In the early chapters, the amazing early chapters of this book, he does seem to be going to tell the living truth about a living boy and a man. It is melancholy to see that sudden fire fading. It is sad to see David Copperfield gradually turning into Nicholas Nickleby. Nicholas Nickleby does not exist at all. He is a quite colourless primary condition of the story. We look through Nicholas Nickleby at the story, just as we look through a plain pane of glass at the street. But David Copperfield does begin by existing. It is only gradually that he gives up that exhausting habit. Any fair critical account of Dickens must always make him out much smaller than he is, for any fair criticism of Dickens must take account of his evident errors, as I have taken account of one of the most evident of them during the last two or three pages. It would not even be loyal to conceal them. No honest criticism, no criticism though it spoke with the tongues of men and angels, could ever really talk about Dickens. In all this that I have said, I have not been talking about Dickens at all. I say it with equanimity. I say it even with arrogance. I have been talking about the gaps of Dickens. I have been talking about the omissions of Dickens. I have been talking about the slumber of Dickens, and the forgetfulness and unconsciousness of Dickens. In one word, I have been talking not about Dickens, but about the absence of Dickens. But when we come to him and his work itself, what is there to be said? What is there to be said about Earthquake and the Dawn? He has created, especially in this book of David Copperfield, he has created creatures who cling to us and tyrannize over us, creatures whom we would not forget if we could, creatures whom we could not forget if we would, creatures who are more actual than the man who made them. This is the excuse for all that indeterminate and rambling and sometimes sentimental criticism of which Dickens, more than anyone else, is the victim, which I fear that I, for one, have made him the victim in this place. When I was a boy, I could not understand why the Dickensians worried so wearily about Dickens, about where he went to school and where he ate his dinners, about how he wore his trousers and when he cut his hair. I used to wonder why they did not write something that I could read about a man like Micawber. But I have come to the conclusion that this almost hysterical worship of the man, combined with a comparatively feeble criticism on his works, is just and natural. Dickens was a man like ourselves. We can see where he went wrong and study him without being stunned or getting the sunstroke. 
but micawber is not a man micawber is the superman we can only walk round and round him wondering what we shall say all the critics of dickens when all is said and done have only walked round and round micawber wondering what they should say i am myself at this moment walking round and round micawber wondering what i shall say and i have not found out yet end of section twenty chapter thirteen david copperfield